The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. You know, I don't think the economic provisions, you know, are are investing in ourselves and other things like that are going to, I mean, they're not going to have any reaction really to that. It's more the sort of gratuitous swipes that you just mentioned and some of the policies regarding their internal um, issues that would be most, and certainly the, you know, Taiwan language and the language about rallying with our allies to contain China, that kind of thing is going to be the most upsetting. And you'll see a lot about it in the Chinese press when and if this ever gets passed. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th, 2022. Don't look now, but the House of Representatives last week passed the Competes Act, its counterpart to a Senate bill last year on competitiveness with China. What's in the bill? What would it do? How similar is it to the Senate bill? And how close are we to a major piece of China legislation? Joining me last week in front of a live audience at Lawfare Live was Susan Thornton, a retired U.S. diplomat who is currently a senior fellow and visiting lecturer in law at the Yale Law School and the Paul Tsai China Center. With her was Jordan Schneider, the host of the China Talk podcast and newsletter, which runs regularly on Lawfare. We talked about the legislation, we talked about the prospects for reconciling it for the Senate bill, we took questions from the audience, and we talked over whether this is a real start or whether it's just window dressing. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th, Congress Moves on China. Jordan, get us started on this. What is the Competes Act, which the House just passed, today and why should anybody care about it? Uh, the Competes Act is the is the House's answer to the USICA Act from the Senate, which is a vaguely anti-China pro-competition bill, um, which weaves together a number of different streams of legislation from funding semiconductors to boosting NSF funding, even to immigration reform. And let's not forget our coral reefs, um, which apparently also play a role in keeping America sound and safe. So uh, this bill, which was just passed out of the House, is now going to go into conference uh, where the Senate and the House will work out some of the um, uh, relatively minor distinctions between the two bills that have emerged in the past year. 
And Susan, talk to us about the difference between these two bills and, and how we should understand how close are we to a major piece of congressional action. Well, I'm not the expert on what's going on inside the heads of Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, but what I would say is that, you know, there's a lot of momentum behind both of these bills on Capitol Hill. It's basically to do things that the U.S. should have been doing a long time ago, beefing up funding for basic research, helping out the National Science Foundation, uh, you know, money for this semiconductor buildup that people have been talking about that we need. So I think there's a lot of, you know, bipartisan agreement around the fact that some of these things need to be funded. There's a lot of bipartisan agreement, of course, around the fact that we need to do this because China is going to eat our lunch and we have to compete with them. And this is a way that we can make sure that we're doing it. There's things on immigration in there and et cetera. But I don't know, you know, there's a lot of partisan rancor up there. It's an election year. Most people think something can be done on this by May. I think they've said they want to pass it by Memorial Day. But, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, things that we have to get over before we get there. Yeah, so there there are some specific provisions that made it into the House version of this bill, which is not in the Senate side. The Senate side passed with an overwhelming bipartisan majority, and there are some bits in particular on the House side um, which may struggle to get Senate uh, to get Senate support. And it's going to be really up to uh, Senator Schumer to decide, you know, what kind of majority he wants to pass this with, and you know how upset the more moderate Republicans may be about some of the somewhat more left-leaning provisions, somewhat, I guess, in today's environment, more left-leaning provisions. So so what are some examples of that stuff that, you know, in the context, I think the Senate bill got 68 votes, so it was actually super comfortable. What are the House bill lost one Democrat and got one Republican? So what is the difference that makes other than the difference between the Senate and the House that makes one a partisan exercise and the other a decidedly bipartisan exercise. Yeah, I mean we had some we had some House Senate House Congress people coming out saying that this wasn't the Competes Act, it was actually the Concedes Act, which I think is really taking it a bit too far. Um but but to be fair, there were a handful of provisions which I think would raise are, are going to raise some some, you know, more serious GOP concerns. So there are two I want to highlight. First is this idea of a um outbound investment screen. Um so as many of of the of the lawfare listeners know, we've found inbound investment screens through CFIUS, which has been kind of like retooled and reformulated for through the firma act but you know money us money going out in the world hasn't had a hasn't had a filter on it for whether or not it's, it would like undermine us interests or impede kind of critical technologies or transfer them abroad and so on this is now going to be something which uh, a recent uh, a recent report by some of my colleagues at Rhodium estimated was going to impact 43% of us fdi into china which is a which is a sizable number FDI is foreign direct investment, right? Yeah. So U.S. money investing into companies building factories in China. So, you know, there, there are the, the H.R. McMasters and Ash Carters of the world would like for that number to be zero. There are some carve outs, you know, for not to screen necessarily everything. But this would 
really reshape the way that money, U.S. money is flowing into China. The other one I wanted to point out for you, Ben, is this are, are the handful of immigration provisions, which my uh, my representative, Gerald Nadler, finagled into the bill. There's a there's a new W visa, uh, which would allow for people creating startups to bring themselves and uh, their spouses and children into the U.S. on a three year visa, which can be renewed if the company hits certain metrics, which like is another whole level of stress on starting a company I can only imagine would be uh, tough to shoulder, as well as an exemption for foreign nationals on the numeric limits for their countries if they're applying for visas with a, a STEM PhD. So Susan, is there a coherent philosophy behind either of these bills, or are they just a hodgepodge of provisions? I think there is not a clear philosophy behind these bills because I think mainly it's it's to sort of make up some ground on some competitive areas for the U.S. that we haven't been able to get consensus on, funding for, et cetera. And, you know, they're using, I think, the cloak of kind of competing with China to try to make it very difficult for people up on the Hill to oppose it, which is it seems to work, at least in the Senate. But, you know, the the problem is, you know, it's going to be one of the only pieces of legislation that people think is going to pass in this year. So it's like a Christmas tree. It's got er something for everybody in it. And I don't know how much of that is going to pass. There's climate assistance, $4 billion for the Green Climate Fund, climate money for the Energy Department, et cetera. Some Republicans have said they object to that. But the philosophy around it being an anti-China bill you know, isn't isn't totally clear. And Jordan mentioned this outbound investment screening provision. I mean, the way it's the way it's drafted, it you know, depending on what you think China is to the United States, it could encompass, you know, everything. And we could have a sort of zeroing out of outbound investment from the US to China in theory. So nobody thinks that's gonna happen, I don't think, but you know, it, it's just it's just kind of a, a a hodgepodge of things and depending on how you're interpreting U.S.-China relations at the moment, which everybody seems to have a different view on, you know, you might come to a different conclusion about what some of these provisions mean, I think. All right. So let's talk about the one that I think is the centerpiece for the bill and is in both bills, which is the semiconductor investment provision. Uh, Susan, how big a deal is this and why do people care so much about it? Well, I think it's a big deal because we have a chip shortage right now and we're having huge supply chain challenges. We have a five-day supply of chips that U.S. companies claim they have instead of a healthy reserve. makes people very uncomfortable. It's affecting automobile production and et cetera. So I think that is the reason why at this moment in time it's such a huge issue. But it's been a huge issue in the recent uh, few years because the U.S. has lost uh, the ability basically to manufacture high-end semiconductor chips and has sort of ceded the manufacturing of less than five nanometer semiconductor chips to places like Taiwan and Korea. And so, um, you know, the Intel and other U.S. Uh, manufacturers are very good at the high-end design. They work closely with these partners in manufacturing to uh, make sure they can be manufactured, but they, we don't have the indigenous capability anymore to do this high-end manufacturing. And people, I think, in certainly in Congress and elsewhere in sort of the national security industrial complex think that that manufacturing capability needs to come back to the U.S. in order to secure that supply chain, both for security reasons, but also just industrial competitiveness reasons. 
they're not content to leave it in Taiwan and Korea. So the question is, you know, can we bring back this manufacturing capacity? Taiwan and Korea both have uh, subsidy programs and certain coziness with the governments. So this is a way of sort of leveling the playing field. But the big question is, can a company like Intel come back up to the level that TSMC in Taiwan and, and some of the Korean manufacturers have been able to achieve in the last few years when we haven't been doing this manufacturing. Jordan, what are your thoughts on semiconductors? Overstated in importance or uh, the real deal? Definitely not overstated in importance. Semiconductors are going to be are, are, are sort of what drives the entire world and is, is where the sort of frontier of technology uh, needs to keep progressing in order for us to to live more uh, advanced, productive lives. However, you know, I, I do take some issue with the way in which that the CHIPS Act has ultimately been formulated, because I think it is a little overweighted on uh, these subsidies to, to to fab firms. At the end of the day, you know, if, if we re- if what we really want is to is to sort of like boost up Intel or create a new Intel, a few billion dollars is not going to is not going to really change the trajectory. These are enormous firms which are which are you know uh, announcing hundred billion dollar investments in in capex and R and D and the and the money while uh, while nice, I don't think is going to radically change the trajectory. If I had my druthers, I would be more focusing on uh, investing in R and D towards you know what's going to be seen after Moore's law, after we reach the end of Moore's law, when we're when we're you know starting to enter a new technological paradigm and there are opportunities for sort of the next Intel to be born and I. I think it would behoove Congress to, yes, put money towards bringing advanced fab capacity back in the U.S., but at the same time, at same time, put a considerable amount of effort and dollars into the sort of R&D research as well as support for small and medium enterprises, which are going to be the startups, which will grow up to be the next, the, the next you know, world-shaping fabrication and, and, and design firms. And unfortunately, the ambition of the funding for NSF has has really fallen off as this bill has developed. So initially we were we were looking at a technology directorate which was going to get a hundred billion dollars over five years, and that was going to be on top of uh, you know a ten or so percent increase in NSF. That directorate has now been cut down a hundredfold. We're only looking at it in the House and Senate bills at sort of one to five billion dollars a year over the next five years, and the NSF increase is only going to be in a in a, in a single digit percentage range over the next five years, which is not uh, as much as the Congress people want to spin it as this like huge radical investment. I'm ultimately a little under coming away a little underwhelmed if this is going to be the sort of big push that America is doing to upgrade our our sort of scientific capability and become more competitive in uh, the critical technologies, which both the US and China are are sort of in agreement with are going to drive the next 10 or so years. Yeah. And moreover, I mean, the both the bills are sort of laden with this kind of sense that we're going to try to keep foreigners out of our technology production areas and sort of make it harder for people to collaborate with, you know, um, malign actors and countries that threaten our uh, national security. And that's all well and good. Of course, there have to be sensible provisions there. But it feels to me like we're going to overcrank on that. And you have to realize that U.S. comparative advantage isn't in any of these other areas that we're talking about. It's in attracting all these most talented people from all over the world to come here to our research bases and collaborate and work on these ideas. And so it is a little bit worrisome, I think, in the U.S., you know, the America Competes Act, that we're 
that we're sort of going in the opposite direction. And I know immigration is a sensitive issue, but getting these STEM graduates from the rest of the world while we beef up our own STEM education system, you know, we can't do this immediately. All right. So I want to ask a blunt and impolitic question in light of what you both have just said. Is this bill a good thing? I mean, it's a lot of money, uh, according to Jordan, for sort of the wrong investment in semiconductors. It's a tiny fraction of the money that you would like to see in NSF and, uh, and the new directorate. Maybe at the end of the day, Congress has just kind of blown it here and, you know, they get to say they have a big China competitiveness bill, but it's not actually a very good bill. What do you think is at the end of the day, should Congress not pass this or is this better passed than not passed? Well, I mean, I think it would have been nice if we could have just passed sort of the CHIPS Act, you know, the, the, the pieces of the bill that were originally put forward. You know, the way that Congress works, I mean, I think it was Marco Rubio said, you know, if we can't get a bill like this passed, then we should just shut the place down. I mean, you know, maybe the the latter sentiment is really what should be operative at this point. I mean, it just it's really hard with the kind of procedural hamstringing that happens up there to see how things that are sensible, like more funding for basic research can get passed without building it up into a big, you know, Christmas tree anti-China bill. So could the bill be better? Absolutely. Do we need money for these kinds of innovation areas? Yes. Do we need this much money in these areas? Probably not. Do we need a lot of the other provisions that are probably going to hamstring those innovation efforts? Probably not. But on balance, you know, I think it's something that we need to do to fund our innovation base. Jordan, what do you think? If you, if, if you could wave a magic wand and either the Competes Act becomes law, the Senate version becomes law, or they both turn into a vaporous puff and disappear and Congress starts over again or doesn't, which do you do? Well, I think I think Congress starting over again would mean no bill ever. So I'm going to pass on that one. What I would do was take the initial young Schumer NSF endless frontier bill from circa, you know, May 2021 and then layer that on top of what we've seen in the House. And I actually think, you know, to push back on you a little, Susan, I do think there's a relatively decent theory of the case. And, you know, even if even if the kind of different uh, ways that the uh, Congress is tackling tackling the the sort of gambit of issues, I do see a fair amount of progress in, in, in some in some things we haven't necessarily talked about it much. I mean, there's a lot of funding for Mandarin study, something near and dear to near and dear to my heart. We have gestures towards, you know, a response to the Belt and Road Initiative to sort of put a, a more U.S. inflected approach to uh, development finance around the world. There's a lot of a lot of good language in there around supporting cooperation with allies in responding to Chinese coercion, um, which I think is something that 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 definitely needs needs more attention coming out of the uh, uh, legislative and executive branch. And you know, you know, beggars can't be choosers here. We haven't had a real plus up for uh, to R and D in um uh, in you know probably since the Cold War. So the fact that I'm not you know I'm not getting my 2025 percent annual increases, but are we going to have to slum it with seven to nine percent? I think is still a win. Look, at the end of the day. 
maybe it was too ambitious and 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 you fully optimistic of me to hope that you would see some real bureaucratic changes to the way the NSF does business and 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 a real sort of grasping towards doing more applied research and funding you know younger researchers in more innovative ways and lessening the burden on on, on scientists in in all their grant making and and whatnot. But but I do think there's there's a lot to be commended out of Congress, kind of putting their heads together and 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 kind of responding to the China challenge and uh, and at least a pretty good first effort. So there's a pretty wide gap between you and the two in the answer to that question. You sound pretty optimistic, Jordan. I guess to put a fine point on it, you would take either of these bills over status quo. Yeah, I mean, I think. It's hard to imagine a world in which this bill, as it stands, fundamentally sort of changes America's trajectory. I think because the changes that are in it are relatively are relatively piecemeal. So, given that, uh, on balance, yes, I would, I would, I would take the take the kind of good and the bad in this legislation. Um, but I don't think it's a sort of revolutionary piece of uh, legislation which has a which has a you know enormously high upside. And Susan, would you take either of these bills over the status quo? I want to get the funding for basic research, but I guess I am a little bit, I mean, I spent 30 years in government. Maybe I'm a little bit more of a skeptic about what government's going to be able to do in general in the sort of area of building up our, you know, economic competitiveness. So, you know, a little bit more funding for basic research, I think is great. You know, some help with trying to get more talent into the U.S. is great if the U.S. government can do that, which I think the jury is still out on that. But yeah, I think more funding for basic research is great. I, I And so in that sense, you know, there's a lot of provisions of the bill that I think are uh, not helpful, that are grandstanding, that are gratuitous, uh, but that comes with the territory. So, you know, I would probably prefer the Senate version. And I think it's important that it gets bipartisan support. So that's where I would probably come out. All right. So let's talk about what should happen in the conference, because it sounds like there's some good stuff, some bad stuff. What would you like to see come out as we work toward a final bill, Susan? Come out of the bill? Yeah. I mean, we're going to take a, a Senate bill that you prefer, a House bill that's, they're both Christmas trees. They both have provisions the other one doesn't have. If you could, you know, sometimes the temptation in a conference committee is to lard it with the things that make it popular in both houses. Uh, it gets more Christmas tree-like, but you could also imagine it getting a little sparer. If you were chairing the conference committee Sounds like yeah. you would strip a lot of stuff out. I go for spare, yes. So always. what does the spare version look like? And what are the provisions that if you were a member of the conference committee, you would say, bring the meat axe down on this, on this, on this? What do you want to see come out of the House or Senate bills? Well, I don't think there's a lot of meat other than the semiconductors, right? $52 billion. And then, you know, there's a lot of little money for a lot of little things. You know, and I don't know, you know, frankly, a Commerce Department office to monitor supply chains, you know, at 500 million. I'm not sure that that is necessary. Um, you know, maybe it's a good thing, but, you know, it's sort of I, I, it's not it's not moving me. I, I think a lot of the other things, you know, in the House bill, 
sort of the money for the energy department. I mean, I'd like to see us do something for climate change. So I would probably be in favor of that. But if it goes, it's not going to it's not going to break my heart. But I think the basic funding for research is the main thing that I would want to see in. So, you know, the NSF and the semiconductor support is not necessary. I mean, I'm kind of with Jordan on that one. I don't know if that's the thing that we need to do to make ourselves the most competitive in semiconductor manufacturing, but it looks like we're going to do it. And then, you know, the, the Endless Frontier Act. I mean, I think a lot of the other stuff is, is just kind of, you know, have the State Department do a report on this, have the, you know, Commerce Department do a report on that. It doesn't move the needle in my view. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Jordan, what about you? If you were chairing the conference committee, what would you be most keen to kill and what would you be most keen? I, I assume you would want to put more money in the in the NSF stuff, but what would be your priorities? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the uh, the sort of Commerce Department supply chain overwatch uh, five hundred million dollars is a really interesting one because it sort of speaks to a broader theme in this legislation and other legislation of America's re you know rekindled interest in industrial policy. And I think in order to you know there, there's a big debate about whether or not it makes sense to have more industrial policy in the U.S. But I think sort of America's hand is being forced in a sense, both by uh, sort of Chinese direct investment and in subsidizing its high technology firms, as well as the rest of the world. You know, e- the EU is about to have a, its own Chips Act and and sort of the South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Japan, all of the leading leading high technology countries in the world are, are, are putting their money when their mouth is to in, or, in order to support their their leading firm. So the first step, I think, is building the sort of institutional capacity within the U.S. government to understand what's happening uh, what's happening at a high level in these in these important industries, and that sort of capacity building, uh, I think, may not you know necessarily pay dividends in the next year or two, like like money going out to to help Samsung build a uh, build a fab in in Phoenix would. But at the same time, that sort of capacity for the U.S. government to upgrade itself and and then you know be able to implement policies at a higher level um, with more. Um, uh, uh, with, with with more skill and industry knowledge baked into what they're what they're doing with all this money they're about to spend, I think is really important. And that sort of kind of investment in itself, the the investment of the government in itself, isn't something that should be discounted. Okay, we are going to go to audience questions. Joining from Finland, Antti Ruokonen, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. So uh, 
Jordan kind of circled around this already. Is, is there anything in the legislation specifically towards uh, countering uh, Chinese influence and economic clout in, in Africa and other resource-rich regions? And uh, could you kind of go into detail about uh, if there's something going on like that in either Congress or in the White House, if, if, if they're thinking about actually doing something about it? Thanks. Sure. So, so I actually, you know, there were gestures towards stuff like this, but there wasn't a kind of big, here's our answer to the Belt and Road. I think there were a handful of, you know, we need to come up with a strategy to counter Chinese influence in Africa and, you know, multiply that for every other region in the world. So there'll be a lot of paper writing, but Congress, I feel like punted a little bit in just asking the executive branch to kind of come up with an answer as opposed to really putting their money, their money where their mouth is and uh, you know, uh, appropriating or authorizing money to uh, support the development organizations that the U.S. government already has that could potentially step up and fill the uh, perceived void. Susan, what do you think? Yeah, I agree that we, if if we were really serious about this, we would have seen some money attached to some of these exhortations to do more to counter the Belt and Road, and we really haven't seen that. So until you have some kind of real uh, resources to work with, it's it's um, it's going to be hard. What would a project like that actually look like? So if you were, if Congress were going to put its money where its mouth is and wanted to really, you know, create a alternative to the Belt and Road, what would it, what would a program of that nature look like? Well, I mean, I think it would be uh, pretty hard because basically, you know, U.S. firms and, and I mean, that's what the Chinese have done, right? They have all these U.S., I mean, they have all these Chinese construction firms, uh, Chinese, um, you know, health companies, Chinese telecommunications firms that go out and, you know, construct these projects in pretty high risk places and the Chinese government finances it. You know, we have not really had the firms that are going to be going out and doing that. So what we've been doing is partnering with countries that do have you know, competitors like Japan, like Korea, others, Israel, and and help to sort of finance these projects or think about helping to finance these projects, which is what sort of the Development Finance Corporation is doing that was given money through the BUILD Act back a few years ago under the Trump administration. But I mean, the amount of money the DFC has is is minuscule compared to the Belt and Road Initiative. So you know, it's we, what we've been trying to do is work together with other partners who have, you know, like the Japan Bank for International Cooperation, the Korean equivalent, some of the others who are doing projects around um, and work with them on financing and, and other efforts. Yeah. So like five Xing the DFC's budget would be it would be a nice place to start. I mean, I think at the end of the day, though, Congress, a lot of this money which is being spent is being spent directly within the US, which I think is an easier sell on the Hill than, you know, this kind of like diplomacy is the US does the US really care if it's like a Chinese bridge or a US US funded bridge. And maybe we care a little bit more about, uh, you know, who's 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 signing up for which uh, telecom system. But at the end of the day, I don't think the Belt and Road, for as much as it has caught the attention of think tankers in, in D.C., has really captured the imagination of Congress to the extent that they'd be willing to put real money behind a response. Is that a mistake? I mean, you know, when you say the five times for uh, DSF would be a place to start, 
one possibility is that we shouldn't be trying to respond to, to this kind of highly mercantile, you know, Chinese uh, approach to economic development in, in other countries. We should do our thing, let them do their thing. I mean, is this is the Belt and Road Initiative something that we should be responding to at all or should we just kind of let it happen? Well, I, I have always said that we should be trying to get the Belt and Road put into the sort of international development framework that everyone else operates according to. And that's sort of where our first mistake was. But then we've just compounded it, I think, frankly, since then by trying to create now competing other frameworks going outside the Bretton Woods institutions and the development banks that are set up to do this kind of stuff. Uh, there probably needs to be reform at some of those Bretton Woods institutions. And if Congress was going to do something, I would love it if they would start to look at how to make the, the IFIs and the development banks and the Bretton Woods institutions you know, more responsive to the needs that are out there in the world so that the Chinese doesn't have to, re you know, the Chinese aren't responding to the needs in the world that are unfilled by, you know, the institutions that were set up to, to fill those needs and where a lot of our money is, frankly. But, you know, I think there's a lot that can still be done to bring the Chinese inside the DAC, inside the Paris Club for debt refinancing and inside the sort of framework for development banks and development assistance but we've chosen to sort of not do that or kind of shun and ostracize instead of trying to work to do that. I think that's probably a mistake. Yeah. Uh, one point that Susan made, I wanted to hammer home on the idea that like there aren't U.S. firms that are necessarily direct competitors with a lot of what China is offering on the Belt and Road. I mean, we can't make a high speed rail to save our lives here in in the U.S., where whereas China, which is, you know, a developing country and has an enormous home market to kind of grow firms that do the sort of infrastructure investment, which can then be kind of translated abroad. And, you know, it, it, on the one hand, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is seen as this like attempt for the Chinese government to, you know, expand its research abroad. But it's also, you know, direct support for its own uh, own firms. And, you know, you see a lot of municipal uh uh, sort of provincial banks subsidizing their own firms to do projects. So it's 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 it it has a much more straightforward kind of like domestic economic logic in China um, than a comparable effort would do in uh, in the U.S. So I agree with Susan in that we need to start, you know really be creative about sort of working with um, other countries around the world who may have firms which are more suited to competing for pitches for the type of projects that the Belt and Road Initiative encompasses in, in so shaping America's response. We have another question from Auntie, who is the only one who's not being shy today. Uh, once again, the floor is yours. Thank, thanks again. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about uh, rare earth minerals and uh, what kind of control does China actually have over the stockpiles and uh, production of these? And uh, what results can we actually see in the economic environment right now? And what do you think the uh, uh, effects will be in, in the future? Thanks. Jordan, what are your thoughts on rare earth minerals? Yeah, I mean, if you look at these, if you look at these reports by the U.S. Uh, Geological Service, you see these pretty scary numbers for certain rare earths, where you know seventy percent of of one and eighty five percent of another are are coming out of China. But I think it's important to to sort of uh, recall the the example that happened in Japan 
in the early 2010s, where at uh, I think over the in a fight over the Senkaku Islands, China decided it would stop its exports exports of rare earths to Japan, and there was you know a three to six months disruption. But by the end of that, Japan had found new supply, built out new mines around the world because fundamentally rare earths are not that rare; um, they are just not profitable to be mined in a lot of places around the world. And, you know, the, the U.S. used to have a ton of rare earth mining. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, had a lot of mineral production in and around it. But America decided that it was not in our best interest and it was sort of cheaper to do abroad. Uh, what you're seeing now uh, with this act and, and, and others are, are sort of subsidies for the creation of, of secure supply chains, which will sort of feed down towards um, making these um, mining projects, which weren't w- wouldn't necessarily be in the green um, without this geopolitical context, all, all of a sudden start to make sense. So I think rare earths are sort of important to watch, but I think the Chinese government really understands that this is a bullet that they can only fire once, because once the U.S. once the U.S. and the rest of the world realizes that rare earth supply out of China isn't something that can be trusted, very quickly, you know, within a sort of one to two year time horizon, a ton of a ton of capacity around the world will come on will, will come online from from India, from Australia uh, has a ton of has a ton of like really strategic reserves in this regard. So I think it's 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 not surprising to me that China has been so cautious in in using this as a diplomatic lever because it's there's there's really a, a pretty straightforward uh, response which isn't going to take a huge technological breakthrough. It's just going to take a lot of digging, and um, once that happens, this will no longer be a problem. I would want to like chime in and say that China has a comparative advantage in pursuing dirty mining projects in third world country, you know, in, in, in third countries. So, um, you know, there is a sort of an inhibition on the part of the developed world to, to do this in their own countries and also probably in third countries. So we should keep an eye on that. But I do think that as Jordan said, rare earths aren't that rare and if we really need them, we'll 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 find them. Of course, the price may go up, but I think it's not something that, you know, we need to be overly concerned about. Lisa Harris, the floor is yours. If the U.S. tried to shape the international development entities to be a competitive alternative to Belt and Road, how would the other countries that are stakeholders react? Well, I think that one of the problems is that the international development organizations and a lot of the development banks, especially, have become very laden with kind of bureaucratic processes, feasibility studies. There's just a lot of, you know, administration and bureaucracy and paperwork that really makes it so that projects take forever to get started and I think developing countries have found that dealing with these processes have gotten kind of overwhelming and there should be some streamlining done to that. I mean, this is a balance. We can't like zero risk every project in the international system. Um, And so I think looking at ways to streamline, I think that would be something that most of the shareholders of the various banks would support. And certainly the recipient countries would support. Right. It, the complication arises, though, when you have to say, OK, we're not going to do this review anymore or we're not going to do this review anymore, because then the same constituencies and values that caused you to do them in the first place, you know what? You don't care about the environment, what you don't care about competitive bidding. Right. Isn't I, I mean, the same factors that led you to do those reviews in the first place 
militate against the streamlining, no? Well, sure. That's why it's a balance. I mean, I think we've really over uh, over exaggerated on the one side and it makes it almost impossible to get projects through now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of the development banks and the, you know, the IFIs have gone away from doing projects, which is why the field is open for for China. So, you know, if there was, you know, a competitive bidder from the among that could be subsidized or helped out by one of the development banks, I think most recipient countries would welcome that. But the, you know, we just don't do those kind of projects out of the World Bank used to build dams, roads, bridges, you know, railroads thing. They don't do that anymore. And neither do the other um, development banks because they've been sort of gotten gun shy about doing these kinds of things that can end up with sort of controversies, NIMBY type protests and other things. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's got to be a balance. And I just think we've gone far away from that balance. So, Jordan, this bill passes the House, I assume not coincidentally, on the day the Winter Olympics open in China. I assume that's a bit of an intentional thumb in the eye on the part of the congressional House leadership, although I don't know that. I'm curious how the Chinese have reacted both to the Senate legislation and to the House legislation, to what extent they've, you know, they've commented on these legislations and and what response we should expect from them. I haven't I haven't seen a ton. I think I think, you know, what what we're seeing in this legislation is a product rather than like a, a like a direct contributor. I think, you know, you'll 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 probably at some point seeing the Chinese government say that the screening of uh, of foreign money coming into U.S. education institutions is racist. Um, you'll say you, you'll see that this money is kind of escalating a competitive dynamic. But at the same time, look, I, I think you could be a, you could find pretty direct comparisons to a lot of this legislation in the Chinese system when it comes to sort of industrial policy, when it comes to, you know, looking at various, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative we've been talking about for uh, for the past 20 minutes. So I don't think anything is going to strike uh, strike Beijing as particularly surprising. And, you know, maybe that maybe the most sort of inflammatory thing I think is probably the most praiseworthy, which is the uh, piece of the bill which makes uh, refugee, app- which, which makes asylum applications easier for for former residents of, of, of Xinjiang. So that type of stuff is probably going to be the type of uh, things to most rile up China. But at the same time, all of the industrial policy, you know, ed- investment in education stuff, the centerpiece of the five year of the most recent five year plan was Li Chong bragging about how he was going to boost uh, investment in basic research and R&D. So it's interesting to sort of watch the, the the two systems start to mirror each other more and more. And, you know, there there are aspects, I think, that you know, are worth considering. Um, there are aspects which clearly I would never want in a, in a million years for the U.S. To, to to go down. But the fact of the matter is, you know, once you sort of are are, are queuing yourself on China, there are going to be it, it, it becomes a reference point for 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 the policies that are coming out. And you know, the 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 sort of appreciation for what it is that China does and doesn't do in Congress, I think is, you know, mixed and some and some representatives are, are more or less sophisticated about about what sort of Chinese policy is and what, it, what you know, how it would make the most sense to respond to. But for sure, the the sort of 
the sort of interplay is going to be a really interesting one to watch as uh, as the two countries respond to each other. You know, the outbound investment screening for one, I think, is, you know, y- you saw China develop its own version of FIRMA. Uh, if the U.S. ends up going down this road, I would be shocked if you wouldn't see the same type of uh, the same type of legislation coming out of the, the Chinese system. Susan, what are you expecting by way of response? I just have to echo what Jordan said and that I think it's really telling that the two systems are getting closer and closer to one another. And what we were trying to do was to make the Chinese system sort of, you know, shape it to be more in the direction of our system. And now we're going in the other direction. You know, I hope that's going to work out for us. I'm not sure. But I think, you know, the Chinese have already baked this in. They were very upset about the passage of USICA. Um, That was, you know, 68 votes in the Senate, you know, bipartisan majority. There's not that much more in the House bill that, you know, I think will be any surprise to them or any bring any new uh, reactions. I think it's already baked in. They've already decided that, you know, this is sort of our going to be our approach to them and, you know, I, I don't think that there's going to be any major reaction to the passage of this House bill, whether it's on the first day of the Olympics or not. You know, this is this is a real American tradition. And I think it's maybe a sort of global trend is like, you know, after uh, after World War Two, uh, the whole world was envious of the Soviet Union and, and its industrial capacity. So we, we which is why we now have a DOD that has sort of the equivalent to five year plans uh, and kind of acquisition cycles and and funding cycles, which which work on a five year time frame in the 1980s, when America was really scared of Japan, we started w- working Back towards industrial policy, we had managed, uh, you know, managed trade became a became a became a hot topic. So I don't think it's you know super surprising that America is taking cues from its um, from its leading competitor on the world stage. But what about the you you referred earlier to the the Xinjiang provisions? But there's also Hong Kong provisions. There's you know some a bit of in your face stuff about Taiwan. You know, you could see the the Chinese taking these as, you know, very much inflammatory congressional actions, or you could see them saying, hey, we don't really care so much what Congress does. We care what the executive branch does. Susan, what do you think is the, is this a, is the Chinese government, you know, going to treat this as a, you know, sort of symbolic posturing by the legislature or as, you know, substantive reflections of U.S. policy with respect to issues that are kind of red lines for them. Yeah, no, they'll definitely take it as, you know, inflammatory posturing, but also, you know, (laughs) meddling in areas that are red lines for them. And I think what they have always said is that, you know, we use the Congress as kind of an excuse to not, you know, we we let the Congress kind of fulminate about about China policy. And the administration says, you know, we have separate branches of government. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily reflect what the executive branch and what, what our U.S. government policy is on various things. I mean, I think the Chinese are you know, no longer really, I mean, they never accepted that and they certainly don't now, but they know Biden's going to sign this bill if it gets passed. So, and it's going to have some of this inflammatory stuff in it and they will be upset about that when it happens. But I think as far as their reaction to every single little step of the process up on the Hill, they're not going to be major reactions, you know, to this version of the bill and they'll sort of be waiting to see what comes out. 
you know, I don't think the economic provisions, you know, are, are investing in ourselves and other things like that are going to, I mean, they're not going to have any reaction really to that. It's more the sort of gratuitous swipes that you just mentioned and some of the policies regarding their internal um, issues that would be most, and certainly the, you know, Taiwan language and the language about rallying with our allies to contain China, that kind of thing is going to be the most upsetting. And you'll see a lot about it in the Chinese press when and if this ever gets passed. But what about the the holistic packaging? Because you, you started by saying that the bill was kind of a, a grab bag anti-China competitiveness bill. And that's certainly the way a lot of people talk about it. I'm I'm curious whether, and that has to be the way China will receive it, right? That, you know, Congress passed a big anti-China bill. It's not like the big Russia sanctions bill that they're also working on, but it is definitely a bill that says, hey, China is a big geostrategic threat and we have to get our house in order in order to deal with them. I, I got to think that they would see that as the messaging of that as itself, both flattering and threatening. If I'm putting myself in Xi's shoes, I think I would take the same tack that that uh, Susan and I had, which is like, what took America so long? You know, again, it kind of come back comes back to the uh, the question of of how much impact this bill is going to have, and you know, I, I I think the the sort of the sort of like you know state council level responses is, is you know probably should be the same as ours, which is that this is not something that is like radically going to improve America's trajectory, and you know probably shouldn't like change their calculations of the of the balance of power five or ten years five or ten years down the line. I, I do want to come back early, though, uh, Ben, to this idea of like what the Chinese response is going to be, because there was a funny little thing that happened a few a few months ago when the DC, when the, the Chinese embassy in DC came out and said, you know, we uh, disagree with the CHIPS Act and we think it's a bad thing you guys are doing. And all of a sudden, you know, Democrats and Republicans get out and said, oh man, I guess this means we really have to pass it. So th- there are these interesting dynamics where like, I- I'm sure whoever the diplomats are in the Chinese embassy, in, in the embassy in the US are probably smart enough to know that like, calling out the exact thing they don't want to happen is probably going to increase the likelihood of that happening. But they have these incentives to sort of like make their make their voices heard and 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 be seen in Beijing as sort of standing up for Chinese prerogatives. So it's, I think, getting harder and harder for the Chinese foreign ministry to play a somewhat more sophisticated double game in which they could try to shape le- this, this type of legislation more towards Beijing's liking. We are going to leave it there. Susan Thornton, Jordan Schneider, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, everybody. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can join future episodes of Lawfare Live and future podcasts taped in front of a Lawfare Live audience by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on our Patreon page patreon.com slash lawfare. You can get Lawfare merch at the Lawfare store. And of course, you should leave a rating or review wherever you found us. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.
This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.